a confession for this morning. Last night at around, well, yesterday afternoon, I guess around 4.30 or so, when I was taking my thumb drive with my sermon and PowerPoint on it from my house to here to print it out, it vanished. And I was a fool and didn't back it up anywhere else. And so my 12-page manuscript disappeared. And I had a really bad attitude about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I was not a good pastor. <laughs> and so I, I had to redo it from, from almost nothing. Um, and uh, I, I feel a little frail this morning because of that, <laughs> on, on a few levels. So... We're all praying, I'm praying, I hope you're praying with me, that, that the Spirit is alive and working this morning because how we need Him. <laughs> how we need Him. Well, let's move on from there. <laughs> this morning we're in Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7, and we really, we're coming to an amazing passage, and it was a pleasure preparing for it and studying it and writing that uh, and the truths that we find in these seven verses are so deep and so profound that I just, the slightest increase of information, of, of understanding, of closeness to God that we could get from these words today would be a miracle. I'm hoping for just something in each one of us that God would move and work and act, show us how deeply he loves us. This is a passage about what it means to be sons of God. The, maybe the most profound idea in the Bible. Now, I love my kids. Deeply love my kids. If you have children, maybe you know what I'm talking about. I hope that you know what I'm talking about if you have kids. They can do stupid things, foolish things. They can be absolute savages. And yet it, it doesn't diminish at all my love for them. You know what pleases me the most? When my girls do what I have taught them without me telling them to do it. I love that. You know, whatever it might be, whether, whether it be cleaning or working hard at soccer practice or, or taking care of their sister or whatever, however it might manifest in their unique little person, if they're doing the thing that I have taught them to do, how precious that is for me as a parent. You know, Dave was kind of talking about these, some of these things in Sunday school this morning. And the most, I think no matter what you look like as a parent, though, a good parent or a bad parent, your child will reflect who you are. They will become, in so many ways, who you are, for good or ill. But in an ideal world, if you're a good parent, if you're teaching them good things, then that child will be a good person, doing good things, teaching good things. And I don't mean good just according to some set of laws, but really righteously, legitimately good they will look like 
their father and mother, and it's more than physical, deeply personal, character. And that is a beautiful thing. That is a child, a son or a daughter of their parent. That's the, the order that God created our existence in, that children look like their parents. And so we come to this passage today about being sons of God and daughters of God. And one thing I want us all to understand is what does it mean to be a son or daughter of God? What does that look like? And then I want you to see just a little bit more how much the Father loves His children. Not just the Father. Father Son and Holy Spirit, there's a divine conspiracy to display on you lavish, infinite, unrelenting love as a child of His. So I want us to be impressed by that love. Okay, let's read our passage. I'm going to start by reading from chapter 3, verse 29, and we'll finish up in 4-7. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so, that, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. How powerful are those words and how limited are our minds in comprehending them. Father, would you open our hearts and our minds to receive these words and to be changed by them, to be absolutely riveted by your unfathomable love for us. Make it fathomable. God, we ask again, that your spirit would be moving in our hearts to give us eyes to see what natural eyes cannot see. And Lord, in all of my weakness and frailty, especially this morning, speak. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So Paul is using this illustration of slaves and sons to drive home a point first about the temporary function of the law. There's, this law is just around for a short time. We've been seeing that as we've gone through the book of Galatians. It was only a temporary addendum to the covenant of promise made previously to Abraham. And then the law came for a time. And if you want to know the reasons why the law came, we'll review some today, but check out those sermons from the preceding weeks. But there's something about Something outside of the law, something greater than the law, something that the law was pointing towards. And that is where Paul is going to take us today. That's what he's driving us towards. Look again at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, 
though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So Paul is stressing strongly that the child is underage. The child is a minor. It's not primarily that the child is a child. It's about the child is a minor, underage, not yet ready to receive the inheritance. And he says that because the life of this child who is a minor very closely resembles the life of a slave. The child and the slave have very similar lives. Slaves and sons, they both live with restrictions. They're told what to do. They're told what not to do. They're watched. They're guarded. And yet the life of the child is dramatically different than the life of the slave. The child is watched so that the child is protected, so that they learn, so that they grow and they mature. And when they mature, they will be ready to inherit. So the child is being prepared through the close watching of their guardians and managers. The child owns everything. Everything belongs to that child. They don't possess it. It isn't in their hands yet. But positionally, everything is the child. Even the slaves. They are all the child's. The slave, conversely, gets nothing. Except that which keeps the slave working. Everything for the slave is so the slave keeps on working. And the slave has no hope of change. No hope of increase, no rights, no reason to think that his station in life is going to get better. It's a a hopeless situation for that slave. It's also very significant to note that the father has appointed a time. The father has appointed a time. Now, there is no example in the ancient world that I could find and that the commentaries noted, no example in the ancient world of when fathers appoint times of inheritance for their sons. It seems Paul is making this up or using creative authorship to drive home a certain point, which is God is sovereign over time. God is sovereign over maturity. And God has appointed a time of maturity. Only in his mind, in counsels of his his own will, he has appointed a time when the child will mature and receive the inheritance. And it's God's prerogative and his alone. And until that time of maturity, in many ways, that child is like a slave. Now, one thing that helps us to understand what's going on here is that previously Paul has very strongly linked slavery and the law. Let's look back at Galatians 3, verses 23 and 24. Follow along with me. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law was holding them captive in bondage, in slavery. So law and slavery are directly linked. Law being a slave master. But Paul 
isn't just talking about Jews. We have to understand this. Paul's talking about something far more than that. Look at verse 3 again. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So he's speaking to the Galatians, Gentiles. We also, when we were enslaved, and Paul, as a Jew, is linking himself to the Gentiles. We we were enslaved. So we know that Jews were enslaved because of the law. Now the way they became enslaved to the law, I want to review this again, the way they became enslaved to the law is they took God's law, which was good and holy and perfect, they took that, and in their sinfulness, they tried to be justified by it. They tried to say, all of these laws, all of these commandments, I can do that. I can become righteous by following the commandments. But they were sinful, as we are all sinful, and no amount of commandment following, no amount of obedience worked. Never could they be justified by the law. Never could they be justified in themselves. They ended up being slaves to the working, to the striving, to the obedience. So that's how the Jews became enslaved to the law, or any law follower becomes enslaved to the law. But how are the Gentiles slaves? How is Paul including the Gentiles into this, who had never received the law? These Galatians never received the law, so how are they enslaved? They're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Or in the NIV... The elemental spiritual forces of the world. What's that? These are the things that govern the carnal world. We talk about the world as one of our three big enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The things that govern the world, these are the elemental forces of the world. Pride, greed, power, pleasure, the praises of man, self-love, self-worship, self-exaltation. Just a very quick jog onto Instagram or Facebook. There it is. Demonic forces are working and active. They're leading people to these false gods, leading them into their chains, leading them there. But every single one of us, Jew and Gentile alike, is selling our slaves to these elemental forces of the world, or selling ourselves to the elemental forces of the world. We are selling ourselves into slavery to the false gods. So whether it's by law or whether it's by elementary elementary principles of the world, elemental principles of the world, sin is making us slaves to either. Sin has us in captivity. Sin has us in bondage. And the law and the elemental forces of the world are the slave masters. And to go from one to the other is just to give the keys of your chains from one slave master to another. Bondage in both. 
Living lawlessly, according to the elemental principles of the world, is slavery. Trying to obey the law through obedience is slavery. Remember, God did not give the law so that people could be justified by it. God gave the law to show you you cannot be justified by it. You cannot be justified in yourself. You need a Savior, someone outside of the law who can justify you, who can make you right. That was the purpose of the law. The coming of that Savior would change the whole dynamic of the world forever. Verses 5 and 6. Sorry. 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So God had his appointed time. And when he saw that the time had ripened, that it was ready, he sends forth his son. This is something so common to us as Christians. We know this. But consider this again. The infinite one, omniscient, in all places, at all times, holding all knowledge in his mind at the same time so that there isn't anything that needs to be recalled. It's all present, who holds the universe together by the power of his word. The host of angel armies, the king of kings and lord of lords, the infinite one was born of a woman. The divine, unrestricted Son of God became a dusty little human. Born under the law. Born under the commandments, all 613 commandments. And although he was born under the law, which for everybody else before was slavery, to live by the law, He lives under the law, and it's free, and it's natural. Living according to the law is like breathing for him. It's nothing to obey the law. He does it with ease. It's rest. And according to that measurement of the law, Jesus is righteous justified within himself. The law isn't justifying him. He justifies himself because his life is righteous and the law shows it. This man is righteous. Surely, this was the Son of God. He looks like his Father. Hebrews 1.3 He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation. He looks like his father, the exact imprint of his nature, the perfect son of God, justified within himself, perfectly free and perfectly obedient, looking like his father, he, that one, 
came to redeem those under the law. So as we saw earlier, under the law, under the elemental forces of the world, all those are slaves to sin. He came to redeem those who are slaves to sin. To break us from our bondage, unable to be justified. He came to redeem us. Jesus came to pay for your freedom. So that means there was someone to pay off. We'll allegorize that. There's a slave master who owns you. Owns you. You cannot escape. You have no means of separating yourself from this slave master. Hopeless. That your life is the slave master's life forever. That's, that's his life. And so the payment required for your life is life. The price of redemption is life. And Christ came to pay that price. To lay down his life, to spill his blood, to free you, that you might be forgiven, that your chains to this slave master might be broken, and the whip might be taken, and freedom be given to you. When Jesus began his public ministry, he stepped out into the crowds, and this is what he said. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Believe in the gospel. Believe that Jesus did these things, that he came from the Father, that he is the pre-existent Son of God, that he took on the frailty of flesh, and in that flesh he lived perfectly and he died the death of a sinner, that we might be redeemed. And he cries out, repent and believe this. So no longer strive No longer seek justification anywhere else, not even in the law. Go nowhere else, only to Christ and belief in Christ. By faith, come to Jesus. And if so, Colossians 1, 13 and 14 is an incredible reality for you, for us. The Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You've been stolen out of the camp of the enemy as a slave in chains. You've been stolen out of that camp and brought into the kingdom of the beloved Son of God. Why? Why does God do this? What have we that God would want to redeem us? Why does he break us from slavery? Look again at the end of of chapter 4, verse 5. 
so that we might receive adoption as sons. So that we might receive adoption as sons. There is nothing greater than that little phrase. That is the most amazing reality for you, for us, for humanity, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We're not natural children of God. We don't look anything like our Father in our sinful state. In fact, the Bible tells us that we're enemies of God. We're rebels against God. Psalm 92, 9. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. Evildoers, doers of evil, doers of sin, those who have sin in their life. Enemies of God, not children. But God, though you were not a natural child, though you were an enemy of God, Christ pays your debt of slavery. He brings you into the court of law. He puts, you are clothed in Christ. You are justified by Christ. And then you are adopted as his son. Everything that he did, coming from the Father, living a life perfectly according to the law, healing the sick, loving the unlovable, dying for his enemies, all of that is so that you can be a son of God. You are his son. Through faith in Jesus Christ. And nothing can take it. Nothing can revoke your adoption. You are his and he is yours. Once in hostility. Once an enemy. Now lavished with love and affection. Your father looks on you. And he says. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. How can it be? Galatians 3.27 For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You are wearing Christ. You are clothed in Christ. You are hidden in Christ. So when the Father sees you, he sees Jesus. We talked about this last week. You look like Jesus to the Father. And so when he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, it's not blasphemy. It's the fact that that God the Father sees Jesus Christ instead of his enemy. He sees his son and his daughter instead of a rebel. The son of God 
became a human so that humans could become sons of God. And this is really hard for us to believe. And probably there's some of you who are hearing these words and you're thinking, that's all really high and lofty. Great. I don't feel this way. I never feel this way. Well, God knew that you would feel this way. I think we often feel one of two ways. Maybe there's more. Sometimes we feel like a slave, like a scared dog, recoiling, just waiting for the master's blow to come. And sometimes we just feel like this reckless person who can't stay away from their sins, just driven always to that sin, driven back, driven back. It's hopeless. And though we feel these ways, and in some, and in some ways, there's truth there, not that the master's going to deliver blows to you. But knowing that we would feel this way, God, gave, God didn't stop in verse 5. He gave us verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because you are sons. That's a statement of finality. It is true. It is done. You are a son of God. And to confirm that, he gives you his spirit, the son, the spirit of his son. He gives that to you in his heart. Now I'm going to parentheses right here. This is an incredibly Trinitarian passage. You see every person of the Trinity at work in this. Usually you think of the Holy Spirit as the spirit of the Father. This is talking about the spirit of the Son. It's the same spirit. There's oneness, unity of will. They're engaged in the same activity. What is the activity? Adopting you as a son. But they're going about it in different ways. They have different roles, different purposes here. The son came and he paid your debt. He died for you to redeem you. The Holy Spirit has come to dwell in your heart, to confirm that you are a son of God, and the Father has sent them both and planned it both, planned it all. The Trinity, one God, three persons. We don't find the, tr- the word Trinity in the Bible, but right here is the Trinity. Let's close that parenthesis. What is the Spirit doing in our hearts? I mentioned it briefly. This cry, Abba, Father, the last thing that that is is an acknowledgement that God is Father. That is there. But that is not what this cry is primarily. This is a deep soul cry, a deep soul recognition that God is your Father. It's a cry of desperation and love, of hunger for more of Him. God, I need you. You are my Abba Father. And in our weakness and in our doubt, we cry, Abba Father. And when we cry that, that's the Holy Spirit crying through us. Do you know what? That's the secondary thing that the cry of Abba Father is. Do you know what the primary thing of this cry is? To confirm in your heart 
that you are a son of God. That God has focused his energy on you, on us, to bring us into his family. He loves you so tremendously. God loves you, his adopted child, as much as he loves his son. And that is crazy. That almost sounds like blasphemy. If it weren't for Jesus' prayer to the Father in John 17, you, Father, love them even as you loved me. And in that moment, you should just melt. Loved by the Father as much as the Father loves Jesus. He loves you. God doesn't want you to go back to living like a slave. He doesn't want you to be oppressed by guilt or doubt. He doesn't want you to wonder, am I saved? Am I a son or a daughter? Is this true for me? He wants you to know in the depths of your heart, like you know that you're breathing right now, like you know that you're sitting in that seat. He loves you. He loves you. You are his child. Verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I've been very intentional so far, just about always, to refer to all of us as sons rather than sons and daughters. Paul has only said sons. In the ancient world, only a son can inherit. A daughter has no inheritance. And so he's using that context to speak into. And yet we know very clearly from chapter 3, verse 28, that Paul is talking about both men and women, male and female. Let's look at it again. Verse 27, uh, 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slavery. There's no male and female. You are all one in Christ. And we talked about this more last week. Sons and daughters are being regarded as the one who inherits. Sons and daughters who have come to Jesus Christ in faith, these are the heirs. So when we see Paul saying, son, do not think that he excludes females. If you have come to Christ through faith, you are a son or daughter. Equally valued, equal rights, equal access, equal inheritance, yours. I want to show you a couple things that we are given in this inheritance. And they're all amazing. They're all amazing. And how bad we are at seeing these things. We're forgetful. You're given righteousness. The righteousness of Christ, that same righteousness 
that's yours. You're given eternal life. You will never end. You will live forever. You are given perfect joy. Perfect joy. Can you imagine that? That's the vision statement of this church. So all people will know joy in God. This is what we want for ourselves, for all people. Joy. Perfect joy. Unending joy. Infinitely increasing joy in the glory of God's grace. That's what this is. Perfect joy. That's yours. Perfect peace. Nothing can take it. Nothing can give you unrest. Perfect peace. Rest, no matter what activity you are doing. That's a crazy thought too. Like God, who is constantly active, constantly doing, and yet everything he does, every activity he engages in is perfectly restful for God. That's yours. The earth and the fullness therein. Man, I love this one. Everything in this earth, the whole earth, is given to you. That's yours. You will be seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2, 6 says that. I've said it before. That doesn't mean you're going to be sitting on a giant throne with all the other believers in Christ. That means you are being given the place of highest honor and respect and glory in heaven next to God, the Father. That's yours. Ephesians 1.21 says, You are given rule and authority above all created beings. Paul even goes further to say that we will judge angels. Wow. But this is the craziest. Ephesians 1.23 says, We, the church, are you ready? Are the fullness of him who fills all in all. I don't know what that means. I know it's magnificent. We are the fullness of God. The fullness of God filling all things. Unbelievable. And that's yours. If you've come to Jesus Christ in faith, if you believe in the work that he has done on this earth for your behalf to redeem you, to redeem for himself a church and to adopt us into his family, if you believe that, you are not the slave. You're not even the child that's waiting for maturity. You are the son who has the inheritance. All of those things I listed, they are yours right now, in this moment. Do you feel like you are seated with Christ right now in the place of highest honor and respect in heaven? Do you feel like you in some way are a part of the fullness of the glory of God? You feel like God extends to you perfect joy and perfect peace and perfect rest? Well, you know, it doesn't matter if you feel it, because it's true. 
It is true. And it's still really hard to believe. We live in this weird state between already, we've already been given these things, and, yet, and not yet. We, it, it's not realized around us. We're not walking in it. The, this whole earth, it doesn't... We know there's more coming. There is more coming. It's an already and not yet. We have been given it, and there's more to be realized. And the the immensely comforting thing to see, especially in passages like this, is that God is working. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is working in us, through us, around us, so we believe it, and so we come to possess it in everything that that means. God is at work to accomplish this. He has started the work, and he will bring it to completion. And he has given you his word. And I mean that in like, you have the Bible, you have this passage, but he has given you his word. He promised it. Nothing can overcome a promise from God. And so we, by faith, believe it. By faith, look to walk in it. Now, like I said last week, taking these eternal realities, which are huge and beyond our comprehension, and so vast and unimaginable that we barely feel it, but we're taking these eternal realities, and with everything that we are, by faith, trying to bring them into the present experience. So I think we should be like that man who is seeking the work of Christ. And in Mark 9.24 cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. Brother, sister, son, daughter of God, be patient, be persistent, and believe. And I'm going to ask you now to turn to Matthew Chapter 7. And I want you to be crystal clear that when we read these words, Jesus is talking about what we've been talking about. Your sonship. And our difficulty in believing that. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who knocks, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. Or if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? How much more? Oh, much more. Ask. Seek, knock, be patient, be persistent, and believe it. Ask until you know in your heart, like you know nothing else, that you are a son of God. 
Seek it until he gives it to you. Knock that door down until you know you are a child of God. He wants to give it to you. He will give it to you. You are his. You are a son or a daughter of God. And one more thing. That cry, Abba, Father, when we cry, Abba, Father, you remember who else cried that, right? Christ in the garden, under the shadow of the cross. He cries, Abba, Father, to his Father, desperate for his Father to strengthen him. Desperate for his Father to give him the strength, the desire, the joy to be nailed onto a cross and die like a sinner in shame. So when the Spirit in us cries, Abba, Father, we participate with Christ. We we become like our brother, our Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer. That's what the Spirit's doing. That's this cry of Abba, Father, making us look like a son, making us into a son. So, fellow brothers and sisters who have come to Christ in faith, be persistent, be patient, and believe these things are true. Father, we come to you and we are, are, are so forgetful and doubtful. But I pray that you would flood our hearts with this incredible reality and your spirit would cry all the louder, louder from within us, Abba, Father, help us to know that we are your sons and your daughters. That gift of peace, Allow it to rest in us more deeply than any other thing. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. And it's in Christ whom we trust, whom we rest, who we depend, and in whom we pray. Amen.